This podcast is brought to you by the University of Pretoria, a world of answers. Arts and literature are sometimes thought of as things that relate to only a certain group of people, especially in the way that our stories are told and who is represented in these stories. In this installation, we look at how art has been a catalyst for social change and learning and how retelling some of our most painful or exciting stories has helped in owning our narrative. My two guests are befitting in this conversation and you will get to find out why. Hi, I'm Aubrey Masango and you're listening to a World of Answers podcast and joining me today is Professor Molly Brown, Head of the Department of English uh, Language and Literature and uh, Mike van Kran, International Award-winning playwright and Mellon-funded artist in residence. Uh, Professor Molly Brown, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Aubrey. And in fact, if I can do a reading, because I admire her. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Indeed. And of course, uh, uh, Mr. Mike van Kran, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start with you, Mike, and then uh, perhaps uh, uh, Molly can jump into that conversation, the arts, artistry, being an artist. What is that supposed to be? And how is it supposed to be, um, I suppose, a crutch to us as a nation understanding ourselves better? Well, look, um, I'm not going to be speaking for all artists, but sure. I'll speak about how I understand it and in terms of my particular practice. And basically, how I view my playwriting is that within a society in transition as we are, my role as an artist, as a playwright, is to basically reflect the society back to ourselves. Um, I think that what we are at the moment, we're this kind of society in progress. We're a democracy in the making, as it were. And what we as artists, I think, have to do is to be at the coalface of pushing back the barriers to freedom of expression on the one hand, but also kind of reflecting the kinds of concerns that people have and that they are maybe reluctant to talk about. So I think that what has happened post-1994 is that a lot of self-censorship has crept into our discourse. Obviously, if one looks at social media, you'd think that isn't the case sure. because people are just so vocal. But in terms of dealing with some of the fundamental issues in our society, we tend to kind of hold back for fear of being called fellow travelers of the apartheid regime or racists or ultra-leftists or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And people are intimidated. And I think that what I try to do with the work that I do as a playwright is to place the kinds of themes and the kinds of concerns that people are anxious about and fearful about into the public domain so that there's an element of catharsis. People go along to the theater and they see that, you know, they, the kinds of things that they are thinking yeah. are, not, are not mad, are not crazy. They are characters yeah. who are thinking and saying the same kinds of things that they do. Professor Molly Brown, I suppose literature and language, specifically the English language, is a medium and a means by which that kind of expression that Mike is talking about can be, can be done, can be expressed. Much of the art of pre-1994 in terms of theatre, in terms of protest art against apartheid, for example, was done in the English language, Right. To what extent is English as a language still the carrier of the messages that are to be carried by art? And is it still a legitimate carrier of artistic expression in South Africa, in Africa? 
I think so, Aubrey. I mean, in some ways, English is problematic. We've got languages dying around the globe. We've got English taking over. But on the other hand, by an accident of history, English has become the most spoken language in the world. And it's a way we can talk to each other across borders, across ethnicities. And to me, that seems really, really important. I admire an American writer called Ursula Le Guin, and she once said, I know of many societies which never developed or used the wheel, but I don't know of one that doesn't use story. And I think we talk about literature, and it's a big word, but I'd actually like to talk about stories, because I think stories are essential to everything we do. If we look at this rather dark week that we've had behind yeah. us, and I know there are complex reasons behind it, but at root, it's a problem of empathy. And empathy is developed by exposure to story, whether it's what your gogo tells you when you're uh, sitting around in the evening, whether it's what you read. Stories are what help us understand each other. And I don't think it's an accident that we are an incredibly violent society, which also has a very low functional literacy rate and very poor access to stories in all forms. So how are stories, and uh, I suppose, Mike, you'll jump in uh, uh, as we continue, but how are stories supposed to shape the way that we think? How are stories supposed to develop the inner moral, ethical world of an individual such that they are aware and mindful of things such as having or not having uh, empathy? Um, and, 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 and are we achieving that? Clearly, we seem not to be given this last week of xenophobic attacks, mm -hmm. the misogyny and femicide that we've been experiencing over this past week or the conversation around that. How are stories supposed to help us develop that inner consciousness? It's fascinating, actually. There's an academic discipline called evolutionary psychology, and it works on the premise that you get genes from your parents that shape your body and that we get memes, prepackaged ideas about things from our broader environment, partly from our parents, partly from our schools, but excitingly also from reading, from exposure to story. So when we have a situation where schools don't have libraries, where kids are taught to read in three years to the point where they can just about decode a story and then pow, the government cuts the subsidy to books in vernacular languages so that no one learns to read easily. The only stories they get is the pulp, which is often on, on television, which is immensely violent. Yeah. Um, those are the memes we're feeding our kids and that's what we're seeing, I think, as a response. Because... It's fairly mysterious. I think it's going to get better because they're wiring up people to electrodes and seeing what happens in their brain. Yeah. Um, but their studies all show that there's a good correlation between engaged reading and levels of empathy. And furthermore, there's been a recent British study, longitudinal, 30,000 British kids. And it's tracked a whole lot of things. But one of the things it tracked was their academic progress. And a child who's an engaged reader at 11, the benefits for that child in terms of income, um, lifestyle, 15 years later, 
are six times the benefits that same child would get from having a parent with a degree. Yeah. And in a country like ours, this is an incredible piece of information. And I get very worked up about the fact sure. that people think stories and yeah. art don't impact on society. Mike, what you do is tell stories through the process of writing plays. Um, and, and, and I suppose Prof will be speaking about reading, but the, the process of storytelling, particularly on this continent, in this country, is as old as this continent and in this country. I mean, the whole oral tradition is very synonymous with African culture, for example. And many would argue that the oral tradition that you see in African culture is very much what you do. It's plays, really, in their most fundamental form. What has happened to the African storytelling process that has done what the professor has said uh, in terms of the building of the inner person or the inner African? What has happened to that storytelling process in modern times that we are not seeing the results thereof in the kind of individual that it's supposed to be producing? And is what you're doing as a playwright facilitating, I suppose, a return to that or a reignition of that? Wow, those are pretty big questions. Um, but maybe I can just give an example of the kinds of things in terms of practice. Um, a few years ago, when Pagad was very active in Cape Town, yes. and the city was incredibly divided by what people against gangsterism and drugs were doing, um, planting, you know, basically setting on fire the, house, the houses of gang lords and so on, um, drug lords. And the city was divided between Muslim and Christian and Jewish folk. I wrote a play um, based and set against that particular backdrop called Brothers in Blood. And essentially it was a piece about three fathers who were motivated by exactly the same things, a Muslim father, a Jewish father, and a Christian father. Each of them wanted to essentially protect and defend their families. But because of apartheid's kind of spatial geographies and because of the way our societies function, they simply did not know each other. And the more they came into conflict with each other, the more the conflicts kind of emerged between them because of the ignorance that prevailed between them. It's only as the story kind of unfolded that they began to realize that actually they're motivated by exactly the same things. And as they got to know each other, yes. so a degree of reconciliation kind of happened. But that wasn't what was so important in terms of the story that was being told, much more the audience's reaction, because it played to kind of sold out houses in Cape Town at Artscape. And the kinds of reactions from people, from a Jewish rabbi coming to me afterwards and saying, that was very moving. I did not know certain things or a Muslim mother coming to me afterwards because right at the end the Jewish father kind of says you know I sometimes wonder how to make things better should I invite people to my home and have a meal do you know that I've never had Muslim people in my house before he says and the Muslim woman comes to me and says you know that was the line that really spoke to her she's never had Jewish folk in her house yeah so I think that to some extent by telling these kinds of stories it's about challenging audiences to think about things that they might not have kind of thought about and before. humanizing the other that's exactly it yeah. you know Prof Molly Brown spoke earlier on about empathy I think that that's what storytelling does it helps people to see other people whom they do not have regular contact with as people. And it reminds me again of another play that we did at an Afrikaans festival called Die General. And two of the characters were a black policeman and a white policeman. The white policeman was in debt and he came along to his black policeman friend to ask for a loan. And just 
that kind of subversion of the normal kind of reality was something which really spoke to people, mainly an Afrikaans audience. And again, I remember, you know, what someone that we would normally identify as a Boer, a farmer, coming out to me in his 60s and saying, with a croaking voice, just donkey and walking off, you know. And for me, it kind of spoke to the power of theater in terms of being able to help people empathize and identify with characters that they might not have known before. In that context, Prof, if art if storytelling, if literature, if playwriting has that very powerful impact on the human experience. Give me a definition then of what is art? I think that art is fundamentally what makes us human because art for me is everything that has meaning for us but isn't necessary. So you make yourself a clay pot for drinking out of. That's not art. The moment you put a squiggle on it that reminds you of the river or is the color of your boyfriend's hair, you're adding something that you don't need, but it matters. It has meaning for you. And I think if we don't have art in the broadest definition of our lives, then we reduce to a really kind of inhuman kind of functionalism. On my way here, I was, you know, avoiding people's gaze in the cow train the way you do. And I happened to look at the list of best-selling books in South Africa last month. Top of the list is a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. What does that say about the kind of stories we're telling ourselves at the moment? We are actually highlighting a book that says... Caring about things is going to get in your way. Stop. So it appears from your definition of art and the way that you explain it is is that art not only is uh, an exercise in the elitist exercises of the rich and famous, but it is a means by which we connect to meaning. It does not perhaps have a utilitarian purpose in the physical, practical sense, but it seems to connect us with something beyond our need for utilitarian things, Uh, Mike? Well, it's an interesting conversation because for me, the arts are essentially creative means by which we as individuals and communities try to make sense of our reality. And they try to help us to interpret our social and material conditions in which we live. And in order to do so, we use theater and music and so on, both to explore our realities, but also to celebrate who we are as human beings. And I don't really have a problem with the arts having a utilitarian function, because I think that, you know, what we need to be speaking much more about um, in this conversation is the fact that actually, if you look at our population, 55% of whom live below the poverty line, they are not the classic audience for the arts in the sense of people paying money to go to the theater, to go and buy a movie ticket, to go to a music concert. And in a way, a lot of the kinds of challenges that we experience within the country really lies within the social milieu in which the majority of people find 
themselves yes. today. And the arts are not speaking to that lived reality or to those folk. And that's a conversation that we need to be having. Are we not encumbered, Mike, by the idea that art needs to take place in a particular venue, in a particular setting, in a particular context by people we call artists? Is, uh, for example, the person who goes to the Church of Shembe, for example, or the African Apostolic Churches who worship under trees, right, who sing and dance, is that not an expression of the same sort of things under the banner of religious practice, but an appreciation of some form of art? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the the origins of theatre are kind of attributed to Greek festivals, religious festivals, where playwrights basically tried to help people understand the meaning of life through creating plays that spoke about, you know, the fate, their fate as human beings as determined by the gods kind of thing. And I think religion has kind of played a major role through um, the ages in terms of using theatre and dance and so on as means of celebrating who people are, but also educating people about the religious faith that they that they respectively have. We'll come back, and I do want to hear from Professor Molly Brown about the context which the English language then presents for expression. The fact that English has become ubiquitous, as you've explained earlier on, for various reasons uh, that you described as the accident of history. But I'm going to be asking the question that basically zooms in on the current conversation happening on the African continent, uh, in the African diaspora, that English is now morphing, changing to become an expression of the languages of the different peoples of Africa. I'm interested in the politics of meaning in the use of words in the English language, the history of the English language in that sense, and we'll continue with that conversation. You are listening to a World of Answers podcast. The University of Pretoria can help you achieve your true potential. As a UP graduate, you are invited to join the university's prestigious alumni network. Download the new UP Alumni Connect app, which is designed to help you expand your network, advance your career and gain access to exclusive opportunities. You can also stay in touch with fellow alumni and be part of a community of change makers. Search for Graduate Community on Google Play or the App Store and let your degree take you further. University of Pretoria, discover a world of answers. Visit up.co.za. You are listening to a World of Answers podcast. I'm joined in this conversation by Professor Molly Brown, head of the Department of English Language and Literatures, and Mike van Kran, who is international award-winning playwright and Mellon-funded artist in uh, residence. And really the conversation is about what is art? What is the purpose of art in society? And more specifically, art as expressed in the English language, because Mike is a playwright and he uses the English language to um, to express his craft. But of course, Professor Molly Brown is a teacher of English, uh, both literature and language. Prof, the 
use of English as an incubator of the expression of meaning, of, of the expression of ideas and thoughts and notions in the artistic form is in itself a big conversation in this country and on this continent. You've got new writers uh, that are emerging, Sisonke Msimang, um, Panashe Chigumadzi here in South Africa, people that are writing Powerful, prolific stuff. Um, Chimamande Adichie out in Nigeria now living in America. Gugi uh, Wationgo, Chinua Achebe, all of those African writers who've written powerful uh, literature that speaks to the African reality, but in English. Many people have come back to say, but that is not a true and authentic expression of what it is that they are writing about because they've used the English language. Again, I come back to the question that says the relevance, the power of English versus other African indigenous languages. Is English still the correct medium by which we can express African realities that must speak to the process of building the inner person, as it were? I read the other day quite a nice quote. It said, English is a language which hangs around in dark alleys, mugging other languages and rifling through their <laughs> pockets too. Yeah. <laughs> for spare vocabulary. Yeah. Um, I do think that English is a way of expressing almost anything. But crucially, it's not the only way. I, for instance, found it very exciting, um, Yakala Madoda, the Kosa novel that came yes. out, which was written simultaneously in English and in Kosa. Andre Brunk earlier used to write his novels in Afrikaans and in English. And I think we need to find a way of preserving our languages, but also hitching a ride on a language which gives us um, access to many more people. And the way we do this, though, is not necessarily by feeling obliged to write standard English. If English has mugged your language, I think you should mug it right back. Yep. Nick Mathlongo, who's probably one of our most translated writers at the moment, proudly says he writes in Zul English. Good for him. Use the language for what you want it to be. Obviously, there are contexts as well. If sure. you're writing me a third-year essay, I'm going to ask for a level of correctness. Sure. But art is definitely not concerned with correctness. If art is not concerned with correctness and it is a means by which we express our imperfections as we try to get closer to the reality of what it means to be human. Why is it that we tend to trip ourselves up with those kinds of, of standards, as it were, Mike? Why is it that we encumber ourselves with, uh, which invariably makes art an elitist project, which makes it inaccessible often to the masses, as it were? And I suppose this segues very nicely into the conversation about universities specifically, which is probably why we're having this conversation, that universities in some quarters have been seen as enclaves of elitism. Why does art seem to be following that, that blueprint, as it were? I don't think it's that simple as art following that blueprint. I think that you're right that to some extent you do have artists kind of following that blueprint largely because the hegemonic structures within the arts still kind of reflect the past to some extent, so that people, in order to have affirmation within those hegemonic structures, conform to 
the, the hegemonic language and the ways in which things need to be done in their view. So, for example, you've got the Fleda Kappa Awards, you've got the Naledi Theatre Awards, and in theatre, people do work in English because that's the way in which the judges are going to evaluate their work. But there are an increasing number of people who are doing work in Indigenous languages. I mean, Jefferson, Shavalala, sure. Mandla, Botwe, and, and doing powerful work that is speaking to audiences that um, simply have not had access to their own stories in their languages in the past. So I think that that is beginning to change. And what it's doing is it's beginning to force those who have enjoyed a degree of hegemony in the past to begin to rethink the, the ways that they are looking at things as well. So, I mean, there was a big kind of change at the Ovations Awards in the um, National Arts Festival just this year, where for the first time there was a black person who was the chairperson of the Ovations panel. And all of most of the judges were black folks. So the things that they gave awards to were very different to, you know, that which had been awarded and given um, expression in terms of awards by, by the previous panels. So I think that things are changing, but it's about people who speak different languages and who think in different ways beginning to assert themselves a lot more within the structures as they exist. Is that perhaps the, the fundamental message here, Professor Molly, that in order for arts of any type and in any um, format in any medium to be relevant, it needs to be constantly looking for ways to creatively break the rules? Yes, I think it does. I think that art is an, opens a window onto new ways of doing things. It's like those photos you used to get, you know, what is this, a drop of milk dropping in a saucer or yes. whatever. It lets you see things differently and powerfully. But I think it is very important that we need to work at making people understand that art is not simply an elitist thing. So I teach poetry to first years and they come in there and their knees are shaking because poetry is this difficult, arcane thing. I start with Beyonce. Um, I look at pop song lyrics. I look at rap, which is some of the most incredible art that is being produced these days. And... Um, I wish we could get this out a little lower into schools, that people would understand that there isn't art which they don't do, um, but that, in fact, art is permeating their life every time they are listening to streaming music, watching movies. That's part of art as well. Um, it's crucial. You, you spoke earlier about the kinds of value systems that we may be espousing when we, uh, in our literature, in our arts, push forward a particular um, value system. You spoke mm -hmm. of the book that you spoke of earlier on. Should art reflect a specific value system or should art be reflecting society warts and all? I think that apart from things that cause obvious and apparent damage, you know, hate speech type things, I don't think art should have rules because I think artists are, to some extent, people who have retained um, the child's ability to say the emperor's got no clothes on to question things, to look at things from different perspectives. Um, and I would be very 
anxious. I mean, we had this. We had it under apartheid, a system where art also was presented as a Western cultured thing, uh, expressing certain values. Um, It became an agent of oppression. And once you start limiting art in that way, I think that you lose really essential functions of it for the human psyche. May I just say something, Aubrey? Um, One of the other areas that I work in is the area of cultural policy. And one of the reasons why I'm active in that is because I think that to some extent, when we talk about cultural policy, we really talk about arts policy. But what we should be talking about is culture in a broader sense. Because what we have failed to understand in many of the kinds of things that we do and the strategies that we adopt in addressing development and Afrophobia and gender-based violence and the like is culture. The value systems that people have, their belief systems, the ways in which they make identity, the traditions that they've inherited, and the extent to which these things impact on how people conduct themselves and in relation to others and in relation to concepts like democracy and governance and human rights and the like, we have not even begun, in my view, to explore the relationship between culture and these things. And this is what I've been trying to do um, at the university over the last six months as well, having monthly seminars looking at the relationship between culture and these things. And in October, under the Culture and Social Transformation Program that we are initiating, is to look at a series of seminars looking at culture and land. Culture and poverty, culture and Afrophobia, culture and gender-based violence, mm-hmm. culture and, and, and all of these things. Because, you know, we need to begin to understand what it is that people are informed by when they act in particular ways so that we can come up with strategies that mitigate that. The reason why we have tended to avoid it is because of the way in which traditionalists have used culture as a way of getting away with yes. everything. And so mm-hmm. as progressives, we've tended to shy away from it yes. and, you know, simply dismiss it. Two to, um, I think, the, the detriment of actually resolving challenges in a more sustainable way. And I think that until we begin to understand culture and begin and its impact on our society and then have mitigating strategies, we are always going to be struggling with the kinds of things that we are. Patriarchy is a fundamentally yeah. cultural phenomenon. Yeah. We need to address it yeah. if we're not wanting to have gender-based yeah. violence. For Professor example. Molly, you're going to have the last word on this. Looking into your crystal ball and uh, (laughs) looking into the future, is the expression of art in its different forms going to uh, pick up greater momentum in its radicalness? Or are we going to be seeing more of a conformist type of art that is less edgy as we move into the future anywhere in the world about art? the vast number of issues that the world has to deal with on this globe uh, we call Earth? I think art is going to do both because there are always governmental institutional pressures which try to use art to enforce a particular paradigm. But, I mean, even I was talking about apartheid, even at that time there were also, of course, artists who were working very hard to counter that hegemonic structure. Um, So I think there will be attempts to co-opt art into these greater visions, but I believe that art is such a fundamental part of our human ability to question, to resist, to express, that we are going to continue doing that. Well, you've been listening to a World of Answers podcast with me, Aubrey Masango. I was joined in this conversation by Professor Molly Brown, head of the Department of English Language and Literatures 
and of course Mike Van Graan, international award-winning playwright and Mellon-funded artist in residence. I want to thank you both really for such an engaging conversation. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Aubrey. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Pretoria, a world of answers.